Good evening. Nick this morning said that he was up here operating on two hours of sleep. So am I. My afternoon nap was only two hours. Oh, I got nine hours last night, but only a two-hour nap. I know how you feel. But I'm not a wild man like you. He, he told us uh, that he's a wild man, and he was a little surprised that he was accepted to the Galilee Project, because you're a, you're a wild man. <laughs> All right, this evening, <clears throat> I would like to, uh, I'd like us to consider something that we've grown up with, something that we've heard teaching on, but something which honestly... I haven't really considered in, in any depth whatsoever. It goes along with the doctrine of the Trinity. It goes along with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was told to keep it low because it picks up better low. That's perfect. Uh, and, if, and if you're going to give a title to this study, to what we're going to consider, it would be perhaps the preeminence of Christ, perhaps the person of Christ, or perhaps the eternal sonship of Christ. And as it's not an original thought or an original topic, I've heard it preached on, and I actually got an outline from my cousin back in Michigan. My cousin back in Michigan is a doctor. He's in the gospel hall. He's a, he's a writer. He's a speaker. And I looked at his outline on the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it, it was beautifully laid out, but it actually perhaps brought out more questions in my mind than it answered. Because let's face it, the doctrine of the Trinity, if any of you claim to have it nailed, any of you claim to understand it, you got to tell me about it. <laughs> because it is perhaps, perhaps the greatest mystery of the New Testament. How that God can be both singular and plural. How that he can have three distinct personalities. And how that one can come to earth and one can stay in heaven, perhaps and one stays silently in the background. And it is so difficult. And through our study tonight, we're not going to get any closer to that answer. Because I guarantee you that this side of glory, we're never going to feel like we have a grasp. I have at times thought, oh, you know, I think I've got it. And when I was a kid, I liked that someone had the illustration of liquid water, ice, and vapor, and how they're all the same yet they have different, you know, they can be manifest in a different way. Well, okay. That still doesn't cover it. The Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, the person of God the Father, the person of God the Son, and the person of God the Holy Spirit is a mystery to us. Thankfully, God manifested himself in the flesh, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in the person of an angel or any other creature, but like unto us, like our flesh. 
that he might be the kinsman redeemer. Fully God, fully man, yet without sin. That in and of itself is a mystery. But as I began perusing the outline and considering this, the th a thought came to my mind that perhaps never came before. Why did God choose to reveal himself to his creation as a father and a son? Not as two brethren, not two brothers, not as a master and a servant, not as a god and an angel, not as any other thing, but as a father and as a son. God, in his omnipotence and in his wisdom, could have manifested himself, portrayed himself, revealed himself in other ways. You know, the Muslims believe that God is revealed in the, you know, what is, what is their creed? God is one. There is only one God, and Muhammad is his prophet. And for them to consider that God could be manifest in the flesh is to them an insult, is to them rid ridiculous that God is only one. And we agree with them in that there is one God. But we are blessed in that God has manifested himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've mentioned before, I have a harder time accepting that Jesus Christ was holy man than accepting that he was holy God. Because I know he came from the Father. He was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of this world. He was wholly divine. His acts, his actions, his words portrayed his divinity. And yet when I think of him having a body like my own, yet without sin, and that's the difference, but a body like my own. It says he suffered in, in the same ways that we do. He felt the burning of the sun. He felt thirst. He felt hunger. In those 40 days in the wilderness, he felt his humanity perhaps like at no other time in his life until his final hours. 40 days in the wilderness. And then approached by Lucifer, by Satan. Satan, who referred to him in his first two temptations, if thou art the Son of God. Satan himself acknowledges the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And tonight I want to look a little bit at what it means to be the Son of God. What are its weaknesses? What are its drawbacks? What are its strengths? What are the problems we experience? These are all rhetorical because there are no weaknesses. There are no drawbacks. The Lord Jesus has, is portrayed to us as the perfect son. Now, though he is portrayed as the son and God is the father, we cannot confuse it in perhaps me looking at myself as a father and Scott as my son or myself as a son and George as my father because there are so many, so many failings and faults in our relationships, father to son or mother to daughter for that matter. If I were the perfect father and Scott were the perfect son, then we could hold ourselves up as an example, but we're, we can't. 
We're not. We won't. First of all, <clears throat> we'd like to turn to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. We'll look at a few verses here in Colossians chapter 1. And get a feel what the Holy Spirit through Paul tells us about the person of the Son of God. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us unto the kingdom of his dear Son. Just to read that again. It hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. That in all things he might have the first place, the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. These verses give us a little picture. We read them, we meditate on them, we study them. And yet it is hard for us to grasp even a fraction of the reality of what these verses tell us. It tells us about the kingdom of his dear son. Some translations have it as his, the son of his love. The son of his love. The relationship of God the Father to God the Son is simple to understand when you think of two separate entities. God the Father in heaven, the wizened old God that we picture with the long gray beard, wisdom and holiness, and the obedient Son. When you think of them as two separate people, then we, you know, we start to get this. But when we try to put it together, God the Father, if you've seen the Father, you, if you've seen the Father, me, you have seen the Father, if you've seen the Father, You've seen the Son. They are one and the same. But we look at it here. God has translated us unto the kingdom of his dear Son. To have a kingdom, there's got to be a king, isn't there? And the Son is the king of glory. He's the king of the redeemed. He's the king of heaven. He is the king of eternity. He is the judge. All judgment's been given into the hand of the Son, hasn't it? To reconcile this into the triunity of the Godhead. Somebody raise your hand if you think it's simple. It's, it's not simple. I long for the day when I sit at my Savior's feet and I ask him to show, show me. And his answer might be as simple as, you see me, you see the Godhead. I am the manifestation, the physical manifestation, the gift, the gift that the Godhead has given to the human race is in the human body, the physical body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God that body is eternal. When we read in the Revelation that I, John, 
how he was translated. And he saw this, and he saw the throne of the Lamb, and before the throne was a Lamb as it had been slain. Referring to that body of the Lord Jesus with its wounds. And that is the physical body that we will share eternity with. The beauty of it, a hand that we can hold, an arm that can go around us, feet that we can walk beside. And yet when we think of him, and we think of those wounds, those hands that we hold are pierced. Those feet that we kneel at are pierced. The breast that we lean upon is pierced. The back that bears us is laid open. And the brow above those glorious eyes is torn. And yet he, he desires to translate us into the kingdom, the kingdom of the Son. Verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. He is the image of the invisible God. He who Moses could only see the tail end of his garment, the back, the back side of his garment, and, was, and came down from the mountain glowing, we see in the flesh. The, the apostles write, but we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels. The person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his preeminence just as a quick overview is to the believer preeminent in three ways. Number one, the Lord Jesus, the greatest step in life is believing on the Son. The greatest step in life is believing on the Son to come out of darkness and turn to the light of the Lord Jesus. That is the greatest step a person can take to go from death unto life, from darkness unto light, to be saved. And not saved in the future tense, but we're saved now. We enjoy the blessings of God, the love of God, the satisfaction, the, the surety of knowing that we are now eternally secure. The greatest step in life is believing in him. The greatest pursuit in life can be said is in knowing him. For me to live is Christ. Ephesians 4.13 says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The greatest pursuit in life is to know the Son. And then it's said that the greatest privilege in life, you know, we believe on the Son, we, we learn of the Son, you know, the greatest purpose in knowing the Son, and the greatest privilege, perhaps, is sharing the Son with others. First John 1 John 1.3 says, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye may also have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. God is faithful, 1 Corinthians says, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The great privilege to bring others to that knowledge. So they can go to step one, the greatest, the greatest step in life, to pass from darkness into light, from death into life. We share that with someone. 
they can take that first step. And then on they go to the second step, knowing the Son, getting to know the Son of God. And then they too can become fruitful and share the Son. From the early church up till today, there have been attacks on the sonship of Jesus Christ. You can think of the Jehovah's Witness and their denial of the deity of Christ. You can think of the Mormons and their downgrading of the Lord Jesus Christ to one of the sons, many sons of God, but the firstborn son of God, they claim. But not the only one. You and I are the sons of that God as well. John MacArthur, at one point in his teaching, believed in what was called uh, incarnational, what was it called? Incarnational um, sonship. That there was a unity of God before the virgin birth, and that only at his sonship, and this is a common teaching. This is taught in a lot of Pentecostal churches and churches of that ilk that upon his incarnation, at his virgin birth, then we now have God the Son, and only then. And it denies the references that are in the Old Testament. T. Ernest Wilson quotes, the eternal sonship of Christ is one of the most vital and basic doctrines of the word of God. It is denied by many heretical cults, but held and valued by all those who know and love our Lord Jesus Christ. We must be on guard against those who say that he only became the Son of God at his incarnation and who deny his eternal sonship. We're going to look at why, why that is important. Some of us may look at it, and at one point in my life I may have also, is it, is, it, is it really that big a deal? Is it really that big a deal? We believe that God has come in the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was he the Son of God before that? You know, we're bound... Unfortunately, we're bound by the timeline that we live in. We live in this instant, not this minute. We live in this instant. We remember the past, we imagine the future, but we live in the instant. God does not live in the instant. God created time, didn't he? I asked my wife on the way home from work, uh, on the way home from a meeting this morning, just a little weird thought that comes to my mind. I said, who was the first, who was the first person to go to heaven? First person in heaven. If you're under 30, raise your hands if you know the answer. Yes, yes, Rick. Pardon me? Thief on the cross? If you look at it outside of the time, uh, uh, on the timeline, that, that may be true. <clears throat> who was the first person in heaven, Scott? Elisha? Elijah? Pardon me? Enoch. Enoch? You missed one. Pardon me? No, 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 no. no first one born of, first one born. It would have to be the first one to die. Who was the first one that died? Abel. So that was my answer. It's Abel, right? So when Abel dies... Abel died. He died, you know, hundreds of years before Adam and Eve died, and before Cain, his brother, and all his other brothers and sisters died. Did Abel go to Abraham's bosom? 
Was Abraham there? Was it an empty paradise? Well, if we follow the timeline, then yes, that's, yeah, he went to the waiting place. He went to the grave. He went to the waiting place. But if we, if we have the divine view of time and can step outside of it, the Lord Jesus had already been offered up for the sins of Adam and Eve and Cain. We, you and I, who hadn't been born for thousands of years yet, have already been seated in the heavenlies if we're outside the timeline. I don't want to get all esoteric and confuse you, but I want, the thought I had is that Abel, when he entered heaven, transported thousands of years in the future because there is no time in eternity, is there? Heaven was not empty, was it? You and I were there. The lamb was there. The prophets and the fathers were there. The disciples were all there, and they were around the throne of the Lord when Abel, when Abel died. I'm not going to present this as some dogma. Don't be writing notes down. But I just I want you to understand that God is not, doesn't, he's not chained to our time. We are chained to our timeline, aren't we? Our time, this time, or this space, this matter, and this timeline, we are chained to it. Once we're freed from these bodies of sin, we enter into eternity. We don't just enter into heaven, we enter into eternity. But we're already there. We're already there, brothers and sisters. We just haven't caught up with ourselves, but we're already there. That's why the, the apostle can say, we are now seated in the heavenlies. It's not just this... Uh, this uh, wishful thinking that it's as, as good as we're seated in the heavenlies. We are in the heavenlies. We're enjoying the presence of the Savior. Not now, but we are enjoying the presence of the Savior in eternity as we speak. I didn't want to get really weird on that. <laughs> but when you think in those terms and you believe the words in the Revelation that say that the Lamb was slain the foundations of the world, from the foundations of the world. The Lamb is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The Son of God was existent at the foundation of the world and before it. In Him all things consist. By Him were all things created. And it is not referring to the Father. It's referring to the Son, isn't it? The Son is the instrument of creation. The Father gives to the Son I wouldn't say tasks or jobs or responsibilities, but gives to Him authority over creation. Gives to Him authority over the souls of His creations, men and women. Some that will turn to Him and love Him, and many, many that will curse him and deny him. The Father gives him the authority. It is by the word, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, that all things consist, that the atoms are held together, that the laws of nature, which are immutable, supposedly, and the laws of physics and nature, which are almost contradictory to other laws, are Sustained by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at some of the attributes. Old Testament refers to the Son of God. Abraham and Isaac, the story of Abraham and Isaac, 
It's a reference to him in picture, perhaps not in word, but in picture. As far back as the book of Genesis, we see the father and the son relationship. The father and son love. The father with the only son whom he loved. Being asked to give up his son as a sacrifice. Beautiful picture of the father giving up the son. In prophecy in the book of Isaiah, we, we read that beautiful verse. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. The Son is the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. David in the Psalm says, I will de declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Another psalmist says, Surely I am more brutish than any man, have not, and have not the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom, nor have the knowledge of the holy. Who hath ascended up into heaven, or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? The psalmist realized that the creator, the sustainer, had a son. Tell me his name, the psalmist writes. In the New Testament, I already mentioned that Satan himself confessed the Lord Jesus as the son of God in the wilderness. If thou be the son of God, turn this stone into bread. Also in the New Testament, we read at least two occasions when the Lord Jesus cast demons out and the demons confessed him as the son of the living God. I adjure you by the <laughs> thou son of the most high God. And then the maniac at Gadara legion says the holy one of God. Other demons as he cast them out, he bound their mouths that they not proclaim him. Isn't that amazing that the very demons of hell, the fallen ones, when they are approached by the Lord Jesus Christ, they must proclaim him as the Holy One, the Son of the living God. The very demons hail him as that. I have a list of many others here. You know, you, you can think of some on your own. You know, Peter, uh, who do people say that I am? Oh, some say that I am. Who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Martha said, when the Lord Jesus said, I am the resurrection of the life, she says, Lord, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. John the Baptist says, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Nathaniel who says, what good can come out of Galilee? Jesus heard him from far away. He says, there's, there's a Jew of the Jews right there. He says, Rabbi, thou art the son of God. Thou art the king of Israel. And I have a list of many more where people, you think of the centurion. Truly, this was the son of God. There was something about the Lord Jesus 
that displayed deity in the flesh. I mean, even those that would not believe him says, no man spoke like this man. There was something about him. Even though there, was, there were other things about him, there was no beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing about him that would turn heads. But when you looked into his eyes and you heard his words, the Spirit of God worked in the hearts and revealed him as the Son of the living God. It is said that the meaning of the term sonship really refers not to a, re a, a relationship biological like my son and I have or my father and I have, but it's a relationship that is rooted in the likeness of character or sameness of nature. Now, if I had married a good Scottish girl, because I'm, you know, I'm 100% Scottish. If I'd married a good Scottish girl, I'd, Scott would be pretty much same in likeness and in nature to, as myself. But I married a Southern girl with a with a mixed breed heritage, <laughs> so Scott's only half Scottish, so he doesn't share my likeness. Although some people say we look a little bit alike, I think he looks more like his great grandfather. But there, you know, there's obviously common blood. But as far as likeness of character, we'll see. We'll see. I hope not. <laughs> I hope not in many areas that there will be a likeness of character or a sameness of nature. If you put the Lord on the left and you put the devil on the right, and you put me in the middle and ask, who do I look more like? I, you're going to aim me this way. You're going you're to send me this way. And I'm afraid that it's true of many of us until we're changed. Now, is that, is that okay? Should it, should it be that way? No, no, no. This is our ideal. This is our example of the Lord Jesus. Adam himself was made in the likeness and the image of the Lord Jesus. It is God's purpose and plan that we be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus intrinsically, perfectly, is the image of the Father. Yet he took upon himself human flesh that he might be my kinsman and my redeemer. It's a miracle, it's a marvel how that can happen. That deity, and you and I, though we come together every Sunday and we meditate on the glories and the perfections of God the Father and God the Son, though we ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten our understanding, to open our minds and open our hearts, yet it's so difficult to grasp a fraction of the grandeur of the Godhead. We live in our own little world. We look out at the stars, but we still we don't, have the con we don't have the conception of how great God is. And this human body of the Lord Jesus Christ create, contains the fullness 
of the Godhead bodily. I was teaching the kids at Awana Thursday night. We had the, the story of the triumphal entry. The Lord Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem. <clears throat> and they hail him. And I try to get the kids' imagination fired. And I say, you know, the, the crowd started with maybe a hundred. And then others, and then others are joined by the excitement. And then by the time he makes it to the gates of the temple, that city was packed because of the feast, because of the Passover coming up. And thousands are, are at the temple. And thousands are on the road. And thousands are singing his praise and saying, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. They're calling him the king, the king that has come. And he says on the first day there, it says that he makes it to the gates of the temple. And he looks in at the temple. And it says because it was late, he left and went back out to Bethany. What did he see when he looked in to the temple? When the Son of God looked in at the temple, which is supposedly the house of his father. He saw the money changers. He saw the cages filled with pigeons. He saw the, uh, all the little schemers and all the booths. That was supposed to be a clean courtyard. That was supposed to be a courtyard for prayer, for bringing in your offering to the Lord. And he looked in and he saw the money changers and he looked at them. And do you think they were blind to him at that time? With all the singing and, and yelling and crowds that are without, do you think there was a head in that courtyard that didn't turn and see the Lord Jesus and see the look on his face as he looked at his father's house? And it says, and he left and he went back out to Bethany. The next day he comes back to the temple. He had given them a warning. This is your chance. You can, you, you felt the conviction of the spirit. You saw the eyes of the son of God and you knew the disapproval and you had the opportunity. He comes back the next day and there's no hesitation. He overturns the tables. He drives out the money changers and he forbids them to carry anything out with them. They didn't see the Son of God. They wouldn't believe the Son of God. Even though their very own Pharisees said, the whole world has gone after this man. And there's nothing we can do. Oh, the power of sin and of Satan, the world, the flesh and the devil. The power to blind men's eyes to who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And I'm not saying I'm any better. If I'd been in that crowd, I'd have been a doubter, I'm sure. I'd have maybe gotten caught up in the excitement of the moment. But until I saw the eyes of the Lord Jesus and felt the conviction of the spirit that this man spoke, no other man spoke like this man. And that I knew that his words were only of love. His words were only of salvation. The Lord Jesus had the same likeness of character and sameness of nature. It has nothing to do, the sonship of Christ has nothing to do with origin or generation. But rather, 
<coughs> when we speak of the Son of God, we're speaking of equality and rank, likeness and character, and sameness of essence as the Father. Like I said, the relationship we have here, Father and Son, is corrupt, it's inexact, it's imprecise. There are some beautiful examples of the father-son relationship in the scripture. Abraham and Isaac, Jacob and Joseph, some beautiful examples. But they're all flawed because we're all sinners. There's only one perfect father-son relationship. Just as the tabernacle was an imperfect example of our relationship to God, of our, the Lord, the God dealing with us and sin through the intermediary, it, it's but an inexact replica. The human marriage relationship is a very imperfect example of the heavenly marriage. Do you wonder, did the Lord, did God pattern his relationship or the relationship of the Father and Son eternally after looking at us and saying, oh, they're going to have a father-son relationship here on earth. Everyone's going to have some type of father-son, father-daughter, mother-daughter relationship. Let's pattern ourselves after that. Or did he create man in a way that our father-son relationship is patterned after the eternal? What do you think? It's patterned after the eternal. Adam was patterned after the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus didn't have to make himself a body that looked like Adam's. No, Adam's was patterned after the eternal son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I long for the day when all this becomes clear for me. I'm on page two of six pages. I'm going to skip to the end because we're running out of time. Um, you know, there, just as in the notes, the son is distinct from a servant. I might treat Scott as my servant all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but a son is distinctive, distinct from a servant. Because the son is the heir. And even though I make him mow the lawn and wash my car and whatever else, Robert never had to do that because he's the oldest. <laughs> though I may treat him as a servant, my boys are my heirs. They're different. And I don't care if I hire Nick, who may be the perfect servant, and outshines my boys like day to night, he'll never be my son. He'll never be my heir. There will never be that relationship. There will never be that relationship. You know, the father sent the son for a purpose. He sent the son to this world to bring many people to righteousness at awful cost. His purpose was not to teach us and get us to straighten ourselves up. His, his purpose in sending his son as the kinsman redeemer was to give himself, to give his blood and his body to bring many sons to God. 
And what a beautiful picture that the Son of God, our kinsman redeemer, doesn't call us to be his servants. He doesn't call us to be his, his uh, a- angelic host. He calls us to be his sons. God the Father calls us to be his sons. And therefore, the Lord Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brethren. And if brethren, then heirs. If we're sons, then we're heirs and co-heirs with the Lord Jesus. This is the miracle, also the mystery, that we should be called the sons of God. There will only be one son. When you say the son of God, there will always only be one. But we have been called to be sons of God. What is our, what is our response to this? As we're running out of time here. Here in the local assembly, we have responsibilities. We have responsibilities in that from a very young age, Dave and I and and many of the other men here have sat or slept through many, many good teaching, uh, a lot of great teaching. And, you know, we remember back to Carl Pfaff and and Armerding, Carl Armerding, and, and Jim Ross, and I mean, these guys have been dead for 40 years, but we remember their teaching. Great foundational teaching, grounded. We've learned it. Half of it we've forgotten, but we've learned it. We've learned the truths. And by knowing the truths, by God revealing much to us, much is required. A newborn still suckling the milk of the word is not going to have the strength, the ability to share, to expound, to outlive the realities and truths of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we in an assembly that haven't, that that have been spared from false teaching, we have that responsibility to share it. You know, the local assembly is intended to be the grounding place, the pillar of God's truths, especially regarding the sonship of Jesus Christ, the obedient son of the Father. You know, God designed the assembly for fellowship, for teaching, but especially to glorify and to honor his son. And I like to think that we do that every Sunday morning. I like to think that as we minister the word that we lift up the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only before the brethren but before the Father. How do you think he feels when his beloved son is spoken well of? You know he's thrilled. God intends the the assembly to proclaim the gospel of his son, the eternal gospel of his son. And in closing, just a thought. You know, the father, and I I went through it twice last year. The the father desires a bride for his sons. 
Last year, we got two wonderful brides in our family that we're just thrilled about. I didn't go out seeking that bride. The boys did. But you know, it's a time of rejoicing when the son, the bridegroom, finds his bride. A chaste bride. A bride that loves the bridegroom. A bride that longs for the bridegroom. A bride that wants to obey and to serve and to speak well of the bridegroom. You know, our human marriages, our, our, here are our earthly marriages, we're, we're not really good at them. I'd like to say I only and always speak well of my wife. So I will, I will say that. <laughs> <laughs> may not be true, but I will say that. The father desires a bride for his son, a bride that is worthy of his son. Is his son worthy of a second-rate bride, a tarnished bride, a feeble bride, a barren bride? Or is his son worthy of the most pure and precious and holy bride. Thank God that through the blood of the Lord Jesus, his bride will be, will be purged of all sin, will be perfect, will be pure, will be holy at the wedding feast of the Lamb. But it is our responsibility to look, look to the Son as the bride in respect to the Father and make ourselves meet, make ourselves ready for that wedding supper of the Lamb. I don't know if I put questions in your mind. I know we certainly haven't settled anything. The mystery of God, of the Godhead, is going to remain so. But perhaps a little better image of the father-son relationship, this eternal relationship, that the Father and the Son have this, this bond. And that bond was broken or separated at one point, that he might bring many sons to himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for him, your one and only, your holy Son. Father, from eternity past, he's been with thee. And Father, eternally, he will be thy son. Eternally, he will be the heir of God. And Father, eternally, we will share with him as co-heirs with thy son. Father, it is unbelievable that we, that we can be called to be the bride of Christ. That we can share in a relationship that is closer than any brother's where any parents or any children can be. That intimate relationship of the bride to the bridegroom. Oh, Father, we know your son is worthy of all. He is worthy of the best. And Father, we know that we have to rely upon him to conform us, to change us, to purify us, to clothe us in his righteousness and change us and make us fit to dwell with him eternally. Father, we thank you for the truths in your word, and we thank you for that word. 
In the holy word's precious name, amen.